We officially start our Advent um, um, Sunday today. Um, we started a week early last week to explain a little bit about Advent. Um, but today is the official start. We talk about the fact that um, Advent season is generally uh, four weeks uh, leading up to Christmas. And so today is the theme of hope. Now, in a moment, uh, Tiffany is going to be reading our text uh, for today, and then she'll be lighting our first candle. Funny story about this, I didn't realize so many of our sisters are introverts. They were so scared to read up front. <laughs> I asked so many, can you read? Nope, nope. Oh, I don't mind reading. Oh, in public? Nope. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but the lighting of the candle, it represents the hope um, we have in fulfilling God's promises. Uh, we're reminded of the Old Testament promises that was foretelling the coming of the Messiah and the hope for salvation and redemption. And now we have uh, great anticipation as a church um, in the second coming of Christ. And so we'll be lighting a different um, candle um, each week leading up to it. And since we won't be meeting in person, I guess I'll light um, the last two candles on that day. But I'll invite uh, um, Tiffany Tiff to come read our text for us. All right, I'll be reading Luke 2, uh, 25 to 38. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Lord, just thank you for this day you've given us. And as we go forth into your word, I pray, God, that you bring clarity to us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. So Luke 2, it reveals uh, five individuals, or at least I would say five groups of people who obeyed God's word and they were blessed because of their obedience. Uh, the first two would be uh, Joseph, Mary, you have the shepherds, you have Simeon, and then this lady, Anna. And despite the inconvenience of their obedience, they obeyed. And I say inconvenience because uh, we fail to realize sometimes that it can be an inconvenience to have obedience unto God. You go like, what? Uh, See, it's easy for us to just say, well, we're Christians, there should be no problem having obedience, but it can be an inconvenience. I mean, Mary, you know, she was pregnant. 
pregnant without, you know, and this is like, well, how did this even happen? I mean, having to move out of, you know, where they were living. And sometimes even, even for us, when we're, you know, with, with our daily lives, we're saying God is telling us to do something, but it goes against what we'd actually want to do. It's an inconvenience. But for this teaching, I'm going to look at two of the five people. Uh, we have um, Simeon and Anna who obeyed God's word while waiting for Jesus. Now, I've titled this teaching, The Waiting Game. Um, not a movie. I've, I've, if there's a movie, I haven't seen it. But if I were to poll this room, the average person would say they don't enjoy waiting. And yet we all do it. Any you guys enjoy waiting? You guys ever go to Safeway and the lines fully just leave, not even bother staying there or another store? <laughs> we spend half our lives waiting on something. Um, uh, we spend six months waiting for red lights to turn green. 16 years waiting for elevators. Now I see why you guys take the stairs so often. You're actually saving years in your life. You know? <laughs> uh, we spend 43 days of our lives waiting on a hold on a phone call. And research suggests that waiting for a text message um, is, for a text response rather, is longer than waiting for someone in person. And here's why, is that the lack of immediate visual cues makes the passage of time slower. And that's the reason why when you make a phone call, they're like, what music do you want to listen to? Do you want jazz? Do you want silence? I mean, it doesn't change the fact that it's 30 minutes, right? but it's just the passage of time might be easier. Now, people experience what's called phantom vibration syndrome. This is when people think their phone is vibrating in anticipation of receiving a message. You know, some people can't even imagine a world where their phone is ringing while they take a shower. So they'll take their phone in the bathroom, and they are fully prepared to cut their shower short to answer the phone. And, and you guys like that? Maybe. <laughs> but there are two sayings that many of you have heard, that good things come to those who? Wait. And some things are worth waiting for. If this is true, can you think of anything you'd be willing to wait your entire life for? Can you think of anything? Are you willing to wait? <laughs> but think about that. Waiting for, for something your entire life. Um, maybe you call it a dream. One day, I'm going to do this. But what good is it to wait for something or even someone if you won't enjoy what you're waiting for? So... Just imagine three years in college, but now you're a senior and you're in a relationship. <laughs> but the fact is, you're leaving after graduation, so you won't enjoy a long-distance relationship as if you are living here. I didn't say you're going to break up. I'm just saying you're not going to be living here. <laughs> but you waited your entire life to find the right person. In Luke 2.25, we're introduced to Simeon, 
And Simeon waited for the Messiah. And we find two physical characteristics of Simeon. Um, in, found in the first part of Luke 2.25. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. So right away we learn two physical truths about him. First, this man was living in Jerusalem, which is the political and religious center of Israel at the time, and actually is still to this day. Uh, second, but most importantly, we learn that his name was Simeon. Now, the name Simeon means God has heard. And we'll see today that God heard Simeon's prayer and sent the most incredible answer to that prayer. So those are his physical characteristics. But Simeon also has some spiritual characteristics. And three of those we found in verses 25 to 26. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So the first spiritual characteristic is that he was just and devout. The word just or righteous shows his obedience to how he responded to God's word towards other people. That's what it means by him being just or devout. Now, now the word, of course, devote itself or sincere, it expresses his obedience to how he responds towards God. One of them is how he responds to other people, and the other one is how he responds towards God. In other words, he knew what the Bible said, and he did it. Pretty simple. Secondly, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the consolation of Israel refers to Jesus, and it's a theme that you'll find in, in Isaiah chapters 40 through 66. If you read those chapters, you'll, it talks a lot about uh, the Messiah. Uh, so this is who Simeon was waiting for. And sometimes that's what God calls us to do, just to wait. Part of our maturing uh, process, not just as part of our process, is this period of waiting. And it often feels like we've been put on this back burner when we're waiting. We know God has gifted us or called us to do something special, but nothing seems to be happening in the moment that we expect. I was talking to, uh, to Justin Swen on Friday. We had dinner, and he essentially asked, how do you balance decision-making knowing that others could feel less important or even feel like being on the back burner. Now, he was referencing um, choosing to hire an outreach pastor over a college pastor. Now, he wasn't advocating for one over the other, okay? And he wasn't giving his opinion on who to hire. We actually meet weekly, and so different miniature topics comes up, and that was actually one that came up on, on, on uh, Friday. But the truth is that every decision that a leader makes will impact someone positively or negatively. So it's never a matter of importance, it's a matter of priority. When we prioritize decisions, great or small, we pray that people can wait long enough to see the fruit of waiting. And sometimes God is calling us to wait. And in the waiting, he's teaching us patience because sometimes we move too fast 
and miss God's timing because we simply couldn't wait. Waiting does not change the feeling of insignificance. Say it again. Waiting does not change the feeling of insignificance. We're human beings with personalities and emotions. We are allowed to feel like we've been put on the back burner. I mean, as simple as it might seem, you didn't respond to that text message because you prioritized something else. You didn't feel like texting right away. Nothing major. And although you'd like to say that's different from the, from the example I gave, it's not because the person on the other side might feel rejected by your delay in responding to a text. Have you ever thought about that? <laughs> so the next time when you choose to text back that person, guess what they're saying? Oh, Oh, so now you want to text me back, right? I've been waiting all this time and you didn't text me back. I'm not even going to respond to you right now. I'm going to let you wait. Why? Because they felt like they were put on the back burner at a time when your emotions required a response. See, they're texting you for something, you didn't respond, and they're heated. Emotions are going all over the place because you couldn't respond. See, that's the reason why, well, not, it's, I mean, I like Messenger, but I definitely don't like Messenger because it shows when you read something, and I'm like, <laughs> because, I mean, sometimes you get up and it's like one in the morning, and you're like, I'm not going to text, you know, message somebody back at one in the morning, so now I'm like, well, I just won't read it until later on, and then you forget to read it, because on the other side, someone's like, I know you read that message, you saw it, it says you read it at this time, and I'm like, Actually, I'm not even online. So, yeah, I just stay away from messenger. get in trouble too much. But God wanted Simeon to wait for Jesus. And Simeon waited. See, patience is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a necessary spiritual characteristics. Any patient people in the room? In the room this size, I saw four hands. My, my. I promise you, if I don't respond to you right away, I promise my phone is probably not around. I just didn't see it. So if you text me, just understand. Except Thursday, you probably won't get a response on, on Thursday. The third spiritual characteristic of Simeon was that the Holy Spirit was upon him. Uh, before Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit only came on certain people for a short period of time. Numbers 11.25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took up the spirit that was upon him and placed the same upon the 70 elders. And it happened when the spirit rested upon them that they prophesied, although they never did so again. That's also why David prayed in Psalm 51. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because he experienced the power of the Holy Spirit and he wanted to keep that with him. He wanted more. But today, the Holy Spirit dwells not on believers, within all believers. So Simeon was one of these uh, privileged people where the Holy Spirit was upon him. God chose him to do something specific. 
And we find this in Luke 2.26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So God had told Simeon that he wouldn't die until Jesus Christ came. Now, we don't know Simeon's age, but the tradition says that he might have been 113 years old. That's what tradition says. And so Simeon had been waiting for God for much of his life, believing he would see Jesus before he died. The question is, why would God tell Simeon that he wouldn't die until he see the Messiah? Why was it so important to have this you know, person to see the Christ? Well, we find, just going back, Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So culturally, you needed to have two or three witnesses to confirm any event. Jesus also confirmed this in Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So Simeon was one of three witnesses God used to confirm that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had come to Israel in the flesh. So what we're doing again in this season, we're leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ, so the story. So the shepherds were essentially the first group, then Simeon was the second, and Anna was the third, whom we'll look at um, in, in a minute. And so Simeon witnessed about two things. Number one, he blesses God, and he thanks God for sending the Messiah. Luke 2, 27 to 32. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Simeon recognizes in verse 29 that his life of waiting for the Messiah was according to the Word of God. Everything we, we, we do should be according to the Word of God. If God's Word has not said it, then most likely you can't trust it. So Simeon believed he would live to see the Messiah, and now he says, I can die in peace. My life is complete. Now, if you discovered you're going to die tomorrow, would you be ready? I, 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 like, I like that. I, I... See, tomorrow is not promised to anyone. So, are you at peace with God, and are you at peace with the people in your life? See, maybe you need to confess something to God, but maybe you need to restore a relationship with someone, but you've been putting it on the back burner. In verse 30, Simeon is ready to depart because he's seen God's salvation. Now, whenever you see the word salvation or save in the Bible, you must ask yourself, well, salvation from what or saved from what? In Luke 1, 
uh, Mary and Zacharias, they looked upon Jesus as the coming Messiah, who would deliver them from the Roman rule and conquer the enemies of Israel. They thought that Jesus was coming to conquer all the Gentiles. So Jesus will do this in the second coming, not in the first coming, but in the second coming where he'll come to defeat sin and spiritual death. So his second coming, he will rule and reign the day of God's vengeance. We talked about this last week. So his first coming was to suffer, serve, and die. Mary and Zacharias had these two comings somewhat confused. But Simeon, he sees uh, this truth. Now, most Jews, they thought the Messiah was coming just for them. But in contrast to this thought, uh, some people in Israel were known as the quiet in the land. That's actually what they were known as, a group. They weren't thinking about violence or power or even an army. They believed in a life of constant prayer and quiet watchfulness until the Messiah came. So they waited quietly and patiently for God. Well, Simeon was one of these Jews, the quiet in the land. He understood um, from God's word that what most Jews you know, thought in the day was they missed it. He understood that Christ came to be the light to the Gentiles to bring salvation, but to also reveal himself. So the Messiah would do this by suffering as a servant, dying on the cross, but also rising from the dead, which Jesus did. So Simeon partially understood the purpose of Christ's first coming and revealed it by giving thanks, which is what we read. The second witness by Simeon is that Simeon blessed Joseph and Mary. Now, when I look at this, what Simeon says to a new, you know, mom and dad, I find it interesting that Luke calls this a blessing. Now, let me read it according to how he probably would have said it, maybe with a straight face. Luke 2, 33-35. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken to him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to them, Mary's mother, Behold, the child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. I mean, just think about that. You gave birth. There you go. Nice bouncing boy or bouncing girl. And someone says, I want to give you a blessing. And here's the blessing I'm going to give to you. Your own soul shall be pierced. But context is everything. Because Simeon's blessing is a prophecy about Christ's crucifixion on the cross. But for a mother, this would be the most tragic event, yet the greatest event in the world. Christ doesn't want anyone to feel sorry for him. He didn't come to get our sympathy. He came to save our lives. Luke 23, 28. But Jesus turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Uh, Mary's soul would be pierced, and so will our soul be pierced when we understand the suffering of Christ, 
but Christ did it all just to save us from condemnation. When people get saved, Christ considers the sacrifice worth it. Simeon knew what kind of Messiah Christ would be, and he waited his whole life for this event. And now that it came to pass, he said, I can die in peace. What are you waiting for? What are you looking forward to? Is it the next vacation? Is it the Christmas holiday? Well, Simeon waited expectantly and looked forward to Christ's first coming. Likewise, we are to wait for Christ's second coming. The New Testament tells us repeatedly that we should eagerly wait anxiously, looking for the blessed appearance of our Lord Savior. You find this in Romans 8, 23-25, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 4, and verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10. The point is it's all over Scripture that we should wait eagerly for the second coming. So knowing that Christ would come any day and living with this in mind, it should cause us to prioritize how we live, cause us to live with eternity in our hearts. Eternity is on our mind. It causes us to do things with a matter of eternity. Matthew 24, 14 says that the end will come only after the world hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't know the day or the hour Christ will come, but what we do know for a fact is that he won't come until everyone hears the gospel. That's what it says in the Word. So, if you're tired of how you know, the world is, get on the mission field. Share the gospel. Because until everyone hears the gospel, Christ won't come. His Word, not mine. So waiting for Jesus should cause us to be witnesses just as Simeon's waiting for Jesus caused him to be a witness. Simeon obeyed God's word in waiting for him. Now let's look at the next person in our text. Anna obeyed God's word in worshiping Jesus, Luke 2, 36-38. So just as with Simeon, the account of Anna begins with a description of her characteristics. So Anna's characteristics we find in Luke 2, 36-37a. Now there was one Anna, a prophetess. And so you see that she's the tribe of Asher. And we also see that she was a widow about 84 years. The first we learned that her name was Anna. So I, I like going through biblical history in terms of the first century. You find that, you know, nowadays everyone can just pick a name. Like, which name do you want? Right? And that's what would happen. Sometimes you, you, they might combine the first, you know, you're mom and dad's name or an aunt and uncle name and you have a long name. My wife hates her first name and she definitely even, she even hates her middle name even more. What's your middle name again? Never mind. <laughs> you should see her face. That's a girl to cut it out. But Anna comes from the Hebrew equivalent Chana, meaning grace. The grace of God was upon her since she was a prophetess. Now, we spoke about the fivefold uh, ministry gifts a while back. Do you remember? Do you remember them? Yes? No? It's not going to come on the screen. You can look on the screen all you want. It's not going to be on the screen. A-pest. Remember? A, 
Apostle, P. Prophet, mm -hmm. E. Evangelist, S. Shepherd, which is the same as a pastor. T. Teacher. So we spoke about this in Ephesians 4 and verses 11 to 12, and it tells us that these ministry gifts are important for the equipping of the saints. In fact, I can actually remember some of these, uh, um, this, this teaching because I remember when we talked about this, how people are looking at different ones in the back of the room to say, do you fit that one? So, you know, it would ask, is there any pastors in the house? And one hand went up, and a teacher is in the house, and people looking around. I, I remember the story. I actually remember where Peter was standing when I did that, that, that teaching. Peter Chung, yeah, I remember, I remember we were standing. I actually remember Lucy's face looking at him, too. But and, and I, I remember clearly. See, when, when I do these teachings, and, you, and I'm always looking because I can remember them. So these are moments for me. I, I remember these things. I don't remember the clothes, but I remember these things. But so we talk about these ministry gifts. These are the gifts that we use to equip the saints. So we need all these gifts to be functioning within the church. We don't just need pastors. We need all these gifts to be functioning. You have ministry gifts, and then you also have ministry offices. We spoke about these as well. Talk about elders and deacons are church offices. This morning I met with the deacon board, and the difference is that when these deacons, when they leave here, they can't carry that office with them because it's an office that belongs within the church. It's not transferable. I'm called to be a pastor. I was a pastor before I came here, and I'll be a pastor until I die. Why? Because I'm called to be a pastor. It's a ministry gift. And so Anna is called to be a prophetess, which is a ministry gift in Luke 2 and verse 36. Now, several women in the Bible have the priv of this same privilege of being prophet. We have Miriam in Exodus 15, Deborah, Judge 4 and 4, Huldah, 2 Kings 22 and 14. We have Philip's daughters, Acts 21, verse 9. There's many more. Now, Anna's work as a prophetess was to speak the word of God and share what she knew about the Messiah. This is what we'll see in her work in Luke 2.38 that's coming up. So that's the basic description of the prophetess, declaring, speaking about Christ, about the Messiah back then. So the first characteristic is that her name is Anna. The next evidence of this grace of God in her life is that she was of the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher was one of the northern tribes of Israel that rebelled against God and was carried away into captivity by the Assyrians. Now, I'm not going to go into history, I would, even though I would love to, but in 722 B.C., um, the Assyrians, they conquered the northern king, kingdom of Israel and deported many of the people. And we talk about how they took some and they pretty much assimilated. So you find some of the Babylonians, they stayed there in Jerusalem, took some of the Israelites, brought them back. And so that's how they got their culture going. Now, once this took place, this captivity, this led to scattering and disappearance of the 10 northern tribes. So many people think that the Israelites of these 10 northern tribes were, you never hear about them again. So they call them the 10 lost tribes of Israel. That's the thing. 10 lost tribes of Israel. Now, prophetically, they cannot be lost because God promised that all 12 tribes would have their place in the events of end times. 
you read Revelation, you'll see it talks about uh, all the, the, the 12 tribes. So God, has, so God has always kept a remnant of each tribe for himself. And so the 10 tribes of Northern Kingdom are not lost. And if you read in Chronicles again, you'll see, uh, I digress. Anyway, so, so this here in Luke 2 in his is an example that Anna was a tribe of Asher, so she wasn't lost. Clearly she exists. She was in Israel. And that's an example of the grace of God, that though her ancestors had rebelled against God and carried away in captivity, God raised her up to be one of the witnesses of the Messiah. The third sign of the grace of God being upon her is her age. Anna was married for seven years and a widow for 84 years. Now, again, if we go into traditional Jewish culture, Anna would have been married in her mid-teens. Um, could have been anywhere from 13 to 16. That's when she would have been married. But let's go with maybe 15 years old. It meant that her husband would have died when she was 22. If we you know, suggest you get married at 15. And since she was a widow for 84 years, how old would she have been? All the applied math people. <laughs> so, 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 if she, so if she got married at 15, husband died at 22, how old would she be, would have been if she was a widow for 84 years? 106. Am I right? Okay. Regardless of the accuracy of my math, Anna was a widow for a very long time, right? But rather than growing resentful, she became resourceful for God. See, when there's pain in our lives, two things occur. We can either become resentful towards God or compassionate towards others. So Anna chose the better path. She chose to reveal the grace of God in her life. So God kept her through all these challenges. It tells us here in verse 37, Luke 2, that she, talking about Anna, did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. So this tells us that Anna was possibly one of the, the quiet in the land, just like Simeon. She served God by staying in the temple, so she didn't even depart from it at all. In other words, she went to the temple as much as possible. I mean, think about that. From the age of 22 to 106, she goes to the temple as often as she could. And it didn't just say she went to pray. It says fasting and praying. So these are two healthy ingredients for any church. When people spend time worshiping God with others, when they spend time praying, right? So in verse 38, we read how Anna spoke of Jesus. It says, And coming in, um, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So like Simeon, Anna thanked God for sending the Messiah, then went out and she spoke to everyone who, were look, who was looking for redemption in Jerusalem. She went around telling everyone, You've got to come and see the Messiah. 
So just looking at these two personalities, Anna and Simeon, we can just ask ourselves, well, what are some lessons we can learn from their lives? Well, the first thing is that they were both elderly, but they didn't use their age as limitations to serve God. Now, in our modern culture, let's rephrase that. In Emerge Berkeley, if you're 23, you're getting old. Am I lying? <laughs> you get to 25, you're getting towards ancient. <clears throat> I mean, as fun as it sounds, do you actually realize that my wife and I could be grandparents? <laughs> I mean, Brenton just turned 26. Tyler is already 18. <laughs> but, but also in our modern culture, it's easy for those who are young to also think um, that older people might lack the relevance to impart wisdom. Sometimes older people would rather spend their remaining years, you know, doing something else. I'm almost 30, so I need to be doing this instead. Like, geez. Anyway. But both instances, do we, do we have any almost 30s? In, in, in? <laughs> you know, I can always talk about Sven. You know, I was talking to him, and he was like, you know, he was talking about, you know, because four, four seasons seminary, and he's like, you know, I think I just want to be able to, you know, just to go on, on campus for the next couple of years, just, you know, just reflect on his life. I've been talking to even, to even Belle about what she's going to do, and she's like, I don't know, just, just thinking through it, I'm like, <laughs> I mean, I've been talking to all these people, and I'm like, man, I feel like, man, I'm going to be 21, getting stressed out, what am I going to do with my life? Like, enjoy your life. Like, seriously. <laughs> Don't get so stressed out. <laughs> but to think that people who are older because they're 25 lack relevance because you're 20, you know, or even the ones that might think that because they're older, they should spend their time doing something else. Both instances are wrong. In fact, Titus 2 tells us that those who are younger should learn from those who are older. But if the older ones are not here, how are the younger ones going to learn, right? So both instances are wrong. So what skills, lessons, and truths have you learned that you can pass on to the next generation? I mean, what happens when we start having you know, kids running around for children's ministry? I mean, just imagine having like three babies just running around during service. <laughs> I mean, I, I grew up with those things. I mean, I, I love the sound of babies running around in church. I mean, that tug at my wife's heart, she's like, oh, yes. Some of you are like, um... Anyway, <laughs> but just think about your age, older 
are younger, what can you pass on to the next generation? Because these guys, I mean, if, if tradition holds true, especially in Anna's you know, case, she's over 100 years old. Something she can pass on. Simeon, same thing. I mean, you've seen them, they're passing on this blessing. But so Simeon and Anna, they, they, they showed us that contentment is not measured by your age. It's measured by your willingness to serve God and share his gospel with others. Don't be content, right? Even though death is imminent for Simeon and Anna, they find meaning of, of life and makes, you know, that makes life more significant. They waited for Jesus, and they waited and waited, but they served God in every way that they could. So I ask the question again as the worship team come forward. What are you waiting for? And as you wait, what are you willing to do with your time, your gifts, and your resources? See, we find meaning in life when we spend it waiting for Jesus. And so all these stories that we've been talking about is leading up to the birth of Christ, leading up to the coming of Christ, second coming. So we see this sense of the Messiah's coming, and these guys waited for the Messiah. In our case, we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. We might not live to see it. We don't know our day. But in both instances, we see that we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to do something meaningful with our lives. So as we're reflecting in this Advent season of this hope, the hope that we have in Christ, we anticipate the second coming, we realize that we have an opportunity to be witness of this hope that we've found in Jesus Christ. Amen? In a moment, we're going to have a communion. And again, we're not waiting for the first coming of Christ. We're reflecting on what it looked like. But even as Christmas comes into play, I'm always thinking like, man, imagine that. Imagine hearing about a Messiah, not knowing, but imagine being like Simeon, where God said, you are going to see him before you die. What a hope to believe. Resting on that hope all those years. Imagine being like Anna. Eight or four years going to the temple, praying and fasting, and sharing that there's coming a Messiah. How can you live as a Christian and saying, hey, I don't know when Christ is coming back, but one thing I know is that he's coming back again. And you have an opportunity to serve Jesus. So if you're here today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I want to introduce you to him. God sent his only son to die on the cross so that we can have an opportunity for eternal life. That's the hope that we have. So when you see us here singing songs and saying that we're Christians, we're saying that Jesus is coming again, not trying to be spooky, 
We're just saying there's this hope that we have in Christ, what we've read in His Word. But for all the rest of us, we can just anticipate His coming again. So in a moment, we're going to take communion. You guys can come forward. And we often say that communion, we practice open communion, which means that if you are a believer, you can partake in communion. You don't have to have it all together, but have you confessed your sins to Jesus Christ? Because I promise you, we're all working on something. We're not perfect. But we're all of us here, iron sharpened iron. You have an opportunity to confess your sins to Jesus Christ right where you're sitting, even privately. And once you've made that decision, you're now part of the body of Christ. And then as a church, we walk this journey together. That's how simple it is. But for the rest of us who are believers, when we take communion, I want us to reflect on this hope, specifically the hope that we have that Jesus Christ is coming again. And because we're believers, we're going to reign with him in eternity. Let us pray. Lord, we're just thankful for your word. We've seen God through these examples with Simeon and Anna and how there's this promise and they waited in all these years, waiting, waiting to see if there'd ever be a Messiah. And sure enough, God, your son showed up. But we're also grateful, God, because of what we saw in that Anna came from a tribe that should have been lost. So you're indicating that you're restoring even the lost ones. So I'm, so I'm praying, God, for the ones who are lost, the ones who don't have a relationship with you, that even now, God, they can make that decision to, to serve you. And as they ask for forgiveness, your word said that you will forgive them of their sins. So I pray, God, that you forgive them of their sins as they ask for your forgiveness. But I also pray for all of us here, God, that we continue to, to wait with anticipation that you are coming again. We've made that decision to follow you. So help us, God, that we can serve you with our very lives just like these uh, two people did it in your word. Lord, we just love you for all that you'll do. I pray that you strengthen us. Help us as a church that we continue to embrace each other and support each other when we're weak, knowing that because of you, we can be made strong. So move upon our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.